Welcome to the Radiant Podcast. We are so glad you joined us today. This podcast features messages, interviews, and discussions from Radiant Church located in Seneca, South Carolina. For more information about Radiant, visit RadiantChurchSC.com. Here's today's episode. Hey, welcome to Radiant Church. My name is Andrew. I'm the lead pastor. We're so glad you could join us today from wherever you're watching or listening from. If it's your first time joining us, hey, go to RadiantChurchSC.com and click I'm new. We fill out that short form online for us as a way of saying thank you. We're going to donate $5 to one of the nonprofits that's listed. Well, if you watch or listen each week, you might have noticed that we didn't release a teaching last time. We actually record these teachings in advance of the in-person teaching every Sunday at Radiant Church. And on the very day we were set to record the message last week, my wife went into labor. So our third child was born, a little girl. She's doing great. Mom is doing great. And if you could just keep us in your prayers that both mom and baby remain healthy in the coming weeks, that would be fantastic. All right. So we are in the last half of the book of Daniel. And this section is really Unique. In fact, it's entirely different from the first half of the book. The first half of the book was full of stories and narratives, but beginning with chapter 7, Daniel makes a hard shift into a different genre altogether. That genre is called apocalyptic prophecy. If you didn't catch the last teaching where we covered the first half of Daniel 7, let me strongly encourage you to at least view the first part of that message, okay? And the reason we do that is because we lay out the ground rules for wading into apocalyptic literature. We want to treat this very carefully, you know, because it's so easy to just chase rabbit trails into things that are wild and crazy. So if you didn't listen or watch that teaching, pause right now and go back to that teaching and catch up for a little bit, then come back, okay? So let's just quickly review these ground rules or the lanes we're going to stay in when handling apocalyptic prophecy. We're going to be cautious. We're going to understand imagery, understand numbers, and understand context. If we can stick to these running uh, lanes right here, uh, we'll be objectively and responsibly handling these important texts with care that I think is absolutely necessary, and I cannot underscore that enough when we get to this kind of stuff. So let's jump back to Daniel 7. We opened the chapter last time with the four beasts, and while we were briefly talking about who they might represent, It's much more important that we understand what they represent. And what they represent is humanity in its fallen state, particularly nations and kingdoms and empires that are tainted with sin and and evil who continue to rise and fall until God's kingdom is firmly established forever. Then Daniel's taken to the very throne room of heaven and he sees God judging all these beasts. And he, he allows three of them to continue to live, but he immediately destroys the fourth beast, which happens to also be the most powerful beast beast. He also sees Jesus. He just doesn't know that it's Jesus yet, whom he describes as the Son of Man, all that happening up there in heaven. And then we left him in chapter 7 asking for an explanation about everything he was seeing. And he's told by someone, perhaps an angel, that the four beasts represent kingdoms which will arise, but in the end, God will reign. He'll get the final victory, and his kingdom will last forever. So let's pick up in verse number 19. This is Daniel's Speaking here, all right? Daniel 7, verse 19. Then I wanted to know the true meaning of the fourth beast. 
but one that was so different from the others and so terrifying. It devoured and crushed its victims with iron teeth and bronze claws, trampling their remains beneath its feet. And I also asked about the ten horns on the fourth beast's head and the little horn that came up afterward and destroyed the three other horns. This horn had seemed you know, greater than the others and it had human eyes and a mouth, kind of, kind of freaky, right? And that was boasting you know, arrogantly. And so as I watched, this horn was waging war against God's holy people and was defeating them until the Ancient One, the Most High, came and judged in favor of His holy people. And then the time arrived for the holy people to take over the kingdom. All right, kind of a weird picture for sure. This is a great place to stop for a few minutes though and just kind of walk through some questions. Perhaps the most pressing question, who is this little horn supposed to represent? So when Daniel describes the fourth beast in verse number seven, he makes note that that beast was very different from the other three. It had 10 horns and three were uprooted to make room for this little horn, which was waging war and boasting arrogantly. Remember our lanes, okay? Be cautious, understand imagery. If the what regarding these beasts is fallen humanity, that's what they represent, specifically nations that are tainted with evil and sin that rise and fall until the kingdom of God comes, then this fourth beast should represent one of those nations. But Daniel says it's different. And so I think it's different because it may represent you know, this climactic point in history where evil has intensified in a nation or maybe even a group of nations. Remember, there were 10 horns. It's a very similar passage in, in Revelation 13, which says these 10 horns have 10 crowns. Um, the, the, these nations give rise to a place of power and strength, which perhaps gives you know, way to this little horn that comes up. So if the end is supposed to be like birth pains, as Jesus says in Matthew 24, it does make sense that whatever national power or powers uh, this fourth beast represents could give rise to a figure known as the Antichrist. And we don't know for certain that's who this is, but it certainly looks like it could be. And if that's the case, this would be the very first time in Scripture any mention or image of the Antichrist actually will appear. Now, who or, or even better, you know, what? is the Antichrist. So there's a lot of crazy theories out there, okay? And if any of them start with the Antichrist is this person or that person or he'll rise over here or that place, just, just dismiss it right away, okay? Don't even entertain it for a second. But remember, we gotta be cautious with this kind of thing. It's really important. We know that the Antichrist will set himself up against God and he'll be revealed when the events of the end begin to rapidly ramp up. So listen to how Paul describes the Antichrist, one of the best passages in Scripture that talk about who the Antichrist is. He's known as the man of lawlessness in 2 Thessalonians, okay? 2 Thessalonians, Thessalonians 2, verse number 3. For that day will not come until there's a great rebellion against God, and the man of lawlessness, the Antichrist, is revealed, the one who brings destruction. And he'll exalt himself and defy everything that the people call God and every object of worship. He'll even sit in the temple of God, claiming he himself himself is God. Now, a lot of people miss what Paul says in verse number four. The Antichrist sets himself up against every single faith. It's not just followers of Christ. It's against everything that people call God, every object of worship. So, you know, Muslims, Hindus, Buddhists, every faith is attacked by the Antichrist because his claim that he is God. And he'll demand worship from every person on every continent, regardless of their faith and their religious beliefs. And that tells us this person wields global power, right? 
and he impacts every person on the planet. And if you wonder, well, how can he control every person like that? It's kind of crazy. Go back and listen to our teaching in Daniel chapter 3. It's called the Battle Over Worship, and in it, we actually take time to explain how such a system can not only exist, but is actually being created right now as we speak. So Paul continues, verse number 5, Don't you remember what I told you about all of this when I was with you? And you know, you know what is holding him back, for he can be revealed only when his time comes. For this lawlessness is already at work secretly, and it will remain secret until the one who is holding it back steps out of the way. And then the man of lawlessness will be revealed. But the Lord Jesus will slay him with the breath of his mouth and destroy him by the splendor of his coming. So the, the Antichrist time hasn't, hasn't come yet, okay? And it won't come until God's actual point in time. But notice that Paul says in verse number 6 that lawlessness is already at work. So think about like all the terrible evils we've seen. Think about Nazi Germany and the Holocaust, um, the Khmer Rouge atrocities in Southeast Asia, the horrors of slavery and human trafficking, all the holy wars, right, that resulted in so much death from people coming to fight for God or their gods or whatever that we've seen in the world. And, and all that evil is just a window into what's to come. It's not even full-fledged evil being released. It's just a snapshot and it's evidence of the work of the enemy in our world, which will intensify and increase when the Antichrist arrives onto the scene. Can you imagine what the world will be like when that happens? Like, we haven't even seen real evil yet. But in the end, well, in the end, he's destroyed. And Paul's pretty clear that Jesus wins. Look at verse number 9. This man will come to do the work of Satan with counterfeit power and signs and miracles. He'll use every kind of deception to fool those who are on their way to destruction because they refuse to love and accept the truth that would save them. And so God will cause them to be greatly deceived and they'll even believe the lies. And when they are condemned for enjoying evil rather than believing in the truth. So the Antichrist wields incredible power. Not just supernatural power, but I think he'll wield great political power too. I think a lot of political influence will be very persuasive, highly persuasive, right? Well-spoken, reasoned. Picture the devil for a moment. You know, we think the devil has got a pitchfork and horns, you know, but the Bible describes him as an angel of light. Satan's beautiful. He looks the part. He says the right things. He speaks the truth, mostly. Like every lie he tells in the Garden of Eden, Genesis chapter uh, 2, it's actually you know, true, but he implies a small twist of truth that makes him sound so convincing. So I think the Antichrist will be you know, in that kind of mold that people will see him and hear him and they'll follow him like crazy because he sounds mostly true and says the right things, right? They'll have supernatural power also. So, you know, Pharaoh's magicians, they could do the same miracles that, you know, Moses did at first. They kept it up for a little bit. But ultimately, they couldn't maintain because God has ultimate authority, not the enemy. So those miracles and supernatural activities, they'll be enough to convince people, particularly folks who are far from God, that this man really is divine. Now, if we go to Revelation 13, we get a little more information, more detail. The Antichrist is painted in a similar light to what Daniel sees. He's a beast that comes out of the sea, for instance. And we read in verse number 7, that he wages war against God's people. But look at this, he actually conquers them. And that's in line with what Daniel's saying. Look at verse 21 in Daniel chapter 7. Daniel says, I saw, or as I watched, this horn was waging war against God's holy people, and he was defeating them until the Ancient One, the Most High, came and judged in favor of his holy people. That victory is short-lived. 
you know, before God comes and judges and ultimately gains victory over the Antichrist and the enemy once and for all. And so Paul was basically saying this, like the Antichrist rules the world, all right? He, he, he's got all the power, he's it. Revelation 13 says he rules the world, okay? A little over 500 years earlier, Daniel's told the same thing. Look at verse 23. Then he said to me, this fourth beast is the fourth world power that will rule the earth and it will be different from all the others. It will devour the whole world, trampling and crushing everything in its path. It's 10 horns or 10 kings who will rule that empire. Then another king will arise, different from the other 10, and he'll be able to subdue three of them and he'll defy the Most High and oppress the holy people of the Most High. And he'll try to change their sacred festivals and laws and they'll be placed under his control for a time times and half a time. So the Antichrist scores this big temporary victory over God's people who are under his control, we read, for a time, times, and half a time. Remember our lanes, right? Understand numbers. Usually numbers are not to be taken literally, but symbolically. So this passage of scripture, very closely related to Revelation 13, 5, uh, which, which talks about 42 months, which comes up to three and a half years, that the Antichrist wages war against God's people. Um, and, and, and this whole thing could open a, just a giant can of worms, and I don't want to get bogged down into all of that with you, okay? Because we could spend a great deal of time talking about what verse 25 here in Daniel is pointing to. But I do want you to be aware of what's coming. This is important. There is certainly a time of intense suffering and trouble that is waiting us in the future. And it's not what we've been experiencing so far in human history. This is a period that will be unlike any other period, much, much worse. It'll take place during the time of the Antichrist we've been talking about. And God's going to pour out His wrath and judgment on the world. It's commonly called the Great Tribulation. This is the period that the Antichrist has just firm control of the world. And he has that temporary victory over God's people that we've talked about here so far. However, his time will come to an end. It will certainly not last forever. Look at verse 26 in our uh, passage in Daniel. But then the court will pass judgment. And all of his powers, the Antichrist's power, will be taken away and completely destroyed. This is the picture again of God destroying the fourth beast we read about earlier. And the sovereignty and power and greatness of all the kingdoms under heaven will be given to the holy people of the Most High. And his kingdom will last forever. And all the rulers will serve and obey him. That was the end of the vision. And I, Daniel, was terrified by my thoughts and my face was pale with fear, but I kept these things to myself. The destruction of this fourth beast and with it the little horn or the Antichrist, as we're mentioning here in Daniel 7, um, happens uh, pretty quickly. But there's more detail in Revelation 19 that we kind of get to. We read it that they're thrown into this, this lake of burning sulfur, which is a euphemism for hell. Okay, And Daniel's told that God's kingdom reigns forever after that. And everyone serves and obeys the Lord, which sounds pretty good. You get to Revelation chapter 20, we get more insight into what this period looks like. So following the defeat and the judgment of the Antichrist, there's this resurrection of those who are followers of Jesus. And Revelation 24 tells us they reign with Christ for a thousand years, something theologians call the millennial reign of Christ. Now, this is not a spiritual reign. This is actually a very physical reign, Christ on the earth. The kingdom of God comes physically set up right here. In fact, the devil himself is not even active during this period because he's imprisoned for most of those thousand years. Something happens, though, at the end. As those thousand years come to a close, 
uh, something occurs with the enemy. This is why I mentioned last time to take note of what we saw earlier in Daniel 7, where God chooses to allow the other three beasts to live a little bit longer before destroying the fourth beast right away. It's just kind of weird and kind of odd. Why did he do that? Well, it could be that Daniel is getting a picture of the nations in Revelation 20 that are used by the enemy to stir up rebellion against God one final time. Look at what happens at the end of Revelation 20. Okay, verse number 7. When the thousand years came to an end, Satan will be let out of his prison, and he'll go out to deceive the nations called Gog and Magog, which, by the way, I think are symbols, not actual nations. In every corner of the earth, he'll gather them together for a battle, a mighty army as numberless as the sand along the seashore. And I saw them as they set up on the broad plain of the earth. This, by the way, is Armageddon. And, and surrounded God's people in the beloved city, Jerusalem. But fire from heaven came down on the attacking armies, and consumed them. So one last attempt by the enemy, who's the real force behind the Antichrist and this fourth beast, it ends in failure. So Daniel doesn't get a picture of what happens next, but Revelation does give it to us. Revelation 21, verse number one, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the old heaven and the old earth and disappeared. And the sea was also gone. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming out uh, from heaven like a, a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. So very real, very physical kingdom of God is set up for eternity. Now notice that John says, to the sea was also gone. Sounds kind of weird and odd. Why is there no water? Why is the sea gone? Remember last time we learned that culturally speaking, many in ancient history in the Middle East, they viewed the sea as the origin of evil. So what's John saying here? I think John's saying there's no more evil, right? Evil's eradicated. God's eternal kingdom is absent of sin and evil and darkness and pain and suffering. This is the picture of God wiping away every tear and no more sickness and no more death. It's the eternal reign of God's kingdom coming to fruition. All right, are you still with me? Can you breathe? It's a lot to take in over such a short period of time, isn't it? And that's why we're doing these in chunks and, and even in smaller, broader teaching spread out over multiple weeks because we just can't cover every single detail that's out there. Here's what I want to leave you with here today, though, okay? I want you to understand that the kind of war it's being waged right now, don't get caught up in, like, Armageddon and Russia. Look, it's going to intensify as we get closer to the end of the world, for sure. But it's going to spill over into our physical world, and it already has. Every time a follower of Christ is imprisoned or killed, real suffering's felt. And each time someone steps into God's kingdom for the very first time and experiences life and forgiveness, real joy and freedom is experienced. See, near the end of his letter to the Ephesians, Paul encourages the Ephesian Christians to wear what he calls the full armor of God. In verse number 12, he gives the reason why. Look at verse 12. For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies. This is really, really important. But against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, uh, against the powers of this dark world, and against the evil spirits in the heavenly places. Whether you realize it or not, whether you want to accept it or not, it doesn't matter. We're in the midst of a spiritual war, which has real world implications. The Old Testament anticipated this battle. You know, it wasn't Pharaoh against Moses and Israel. It was the enemy attempting to defeat God. It wasn't just King Ahab slaughtering all the priests in Israel. It was the enemy trying to defeat God. It wasn't Haman desiring to commit genocide against the Jews. It was the enemy trying to destroy what God had made. And time and time and time again, no matter how hard he's tried and how much suffering he's inflicted, the enemy has always failed. He overplays his hand. 
So while the Old Testament anticipated the spiritual warfare, the New Testament pulls back the curtain and is like, we'll call it for what it is. Here's what's happening, right? We see for what it is. When Christ casts out demons and, and rises from the dead, we see the victory, right? We see it in Paul's writings about the Antichrist we just talked about today. The imagery in Revelation, which we get this great picture of, of who's pulling all the strings. It's the devil. It's the enemy. There's a real spiritual war being fought. And the big takeaway here is that what happens in the spiritual, listen to me, it always affects what happens in the natural. You can't bury your head in the sand or be in denial about what's physically taking place here. But know that behind every act of evil, there's dark spiritual forces at work, okay? Know that if you want to see change in the natural, boy, you better wage war in the spiritual. And say, so, Pastor, how do we even do that? Well, we do what Paul was asking his readers to do. We put on the full armor of God so that we'll be able to resist the enemy in the time of evil. And then after the battle, he says, you'll be standing firm. What's your weapon in the spiritual warfare? Well, in verse number 17, that same letter, Paul says it's the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. In every instance, when Jesus was defeating the enemy, he used scripture from God's word. And he invoked God's power. As we get closer and closer to the end, and suffering and trouble comes, I want you to be mindful of what's really happening behind the scenes here. There's a spiritual war taking place that is careening towards an end, which sees God as the victor. And that means we need to be prepared. It means we need to know how to fight this kind of battle. And we fight it using God's word. I'm going to tell you this too. We're going to fight it using God's power as well. Let me pray for you here before we get uh, you know, out of here and, and enjoy the rest of the day. And let's give you that one more encouragement. Don't pay attention to all the things happening in the news. Don't get caught up in you know, what's happening with Russia and Ukraine and what could happen next week and, 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 and fall in line with political pundits and forget all that. Spiritual warfare is behind it all. It's being waged. We're heading closer to the end. What's more important are you ready? Is your family ready? Are your friends ready? Let me pray for you. God, I love you. Thank you for those who are watching and listening right now. I pray that we are ready for the end. I pray, God, that you prepare our hearts, prepare our lives for what is coming down the road. Lord, may we understand the times we're in. May we wage spiritual warfare with the word of God, with our prayer life and our prayer language. God, may we utilize our, our, our gifts and abilities you've blessed us with to take that ground the enemy has taken. This is the time for us not to be on the sidelines. God, this is the time for us to be on the front lines of this spiritual battle, trying to take back ground the enemy has taken from us. And so, Lord, I pray that we are victorious in our spiritual battles. I pray we're victorious in that spiritual warfare, Lord, and we are able to win people to you and bring folks in your kingdom before the end comes. It will come. Your word says it will come like a flood. It will be here before we know it. And I just pray, Lord, right now that you would encourage our hearts, strengthen our hearts, our lives. Help us, God to walk in lockstep, not paying attention to all the things happening on the news and around the world. I mean, we need to pay attention, but not being obsessed over it. But Lord, instead, focusing on what the times are telling us, that we are closer to your return. We need to be more about your business and winning people for you and, and ministering to hearts and, and lives, God, who are in desperate need of a Savior. Help us to be a light in a dark world. We thank you for what you're going to do for what you're already done in our lives. 
and we are eagerly waiting the day you arrive and set your kingdom up forever. We pray all this in your name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions or would like to reach out to us, you can do so by emailing us at media at radiantchurchsc.com or visit one of our social accounts on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube. If you like what you heard today, subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss any future episodes and give us a five-star rating on the podcast platform that you listen to. We hope you have an amazing rest of your day.